Welcome to the Postpartum Wow, the show where moms share their raw, unfiltered postpartum moments. I'm your host, Sarah Allen, and I'm a first-time mom who was completely broadsided by postpartum depression and anxiety. I'm here to show the not-so-pretty side of becoming a parent, and I hope you hear something that resonates with you because, let's be honest, the postpartum experience is nothing like we imagined. But along with the struggles come glimpses of hope. So buckle up and hold on tight, and let's get to it. Welcome back, friends. Uh, This is a special episode today. I have with me uh, author Jasmine Emmerich, who is a uh, licensed master social worker. Um, I've got her bio, so I'm going to read it real quick. Um, uh, She is an energetic mother of two. She is a devoted wife, daughter, sister, friend, colleague, and family member. Often described as one of the craziest people you will ever meet, she has a heart of gold and a love for people with a passion to support women. She has almost 10 years of clinical experience as a mental health therapist and is trained in treating perinatal mood and anxiety disorders. Jasmine, welcome to the podcast. Welcome. Thank you. Hello, everyone. So quick correction since I wrote my book. I am now a mother of three instead of two. Oh, wow. Wow. I know. I know people are like, are you going to write another book? And I'm like, not now, not anytime soon, but maybe I should have waited to write it because number three was a doozy. But anyway, so yes, now mother of three. Wow. That's awesome. Well, welcome. So happy to have you on the postpartum. Wow. Uh, before we get into the meat and potatoes of the episode, I always have to give my little disclaimer and trigger warning. Uh, I am I'm not a medical professional. Jasmine is a professional more so than I am. So what I say or what advice I give um, is just my own thoughts and opinions and trigger for those. If you're in the throes of any kind of postpartum mood disorder, uh, please be aware of that. Uh, what we talk about today could be triggering. So keep that in mind. So Jasmine, um, tell us a little bit about yourself. You already explained you're a mom of three now. Um, yeah, give us your name, like where you're from and husband, kids, all the the whole nine yards. Yeah. And I want to follow suit as well. I I tell people that even in my book and even when doing the podcast that I'm also just coming to you as a mom, not so much as a clinician. So I kind of share the same trigger warning and disclaimer that I am not going to be a professional in this setting um, per se. You know, a lot of my experience is my own. And so I share this as a mom versus trying to be anyone's therapist or anything like that. So I want to also share that disclaimer with you. So yeah, so um, I live in Michigan. We found out that we are very far apart. So I was honored to find out that my book had made it so far. Uh, I am a therapist. I got my master's degree from Western Michigan University in 2013. I'm going on about 10 years of being in a master's level clinician I've been in the mental health field since 2010. Um, mom of three, I just had little Remy in July. And when I say he was a doozy, he was. He arrived nine pounds, 12 ounces. And so, yeah. And he ruined my Kevin Hart experience. So I'll put that out there. I was at Kevin Hart's show in Grand Rapids when my water broke. And Kevin had only been on set for five minutes. So, okay, Remy will owe, owe me tickets when he's older. Um, so yeah, in regards right now, working part-time, I like that split. It works best for me and my mental health. I like to have, uh, more than just the weekend with my kids. I also need to work though. I can't be home all the time or I'm not a good mom as I tell my kids. So I do a a part-time split right now. I'm able to, I know some moms aren't, so no worries and no offense if you can't. I have been able to do that and it has worked well for me. Um, let's see what else. Two dogs driving nuts with kids. Don't do dogs and kids. Um, let me see. I think that's probably about it. I'm married. I have a spouse. I have a husband person. He's great. Uh, this I call him Clark Griswold of Christmas. So we just got all of our lights on. It's truly magical. Yeah. Great. Yeah. My husband is the complete opposite. I I always love to, to describe myself as buddy, the elf and he's, uh, Mr. Scrooge. So yeah, yeah, I totally, totally get that. Um, you've talked a little bit about your profession. Um, I'm curious to know why exactly you chose it and what inspired you to write the book. 
So good question. If we go back historically, right, if we go back into why I did social work, I wanted to work with teens and I wanted to do substance use with teens. I said, I don't want to work with adults. They're too difficult. Okay. This was back when I first went to school. So the majority of my practice had been with teens and kids. Then I became a mom and I was getting older and I'm like, wow, maybe I should work with moms. So then we can help the kids and the teens, right? And then um, it wasn't until a year postpartum that I kind of had this realization that I had suffered with postpartum anxiety and not realized it. And after I had that realization, I was like, oh my gosh, women need to be supported because I thought I was so prepared. I was a clinician. I was a clinician that had already previously been trained in treating postpartum mood disorders. At the time, that's what they said, uh, postpartum mood disorders. Now they use the terminology perinatal mood and anxiety disorders. Uh, I had conversations with my husband like, hey, you know, I might be a risk factor for this. I run anxious. Let me know if you notice anything. I thought I had everything ready to go. I had loved kids in my whole life, my whole life. I Starting at the age of 12, as soon as I could babysit, I did. You know, my first nephew, I was like, yeah, let's go. Uh, I love kids. I was ready. I was ready to be a mom, right? And then once I had the realization, I wish I could give you a date. It was like February of, uh, what would it have been? 2019. I went out for a girl's day with my friends. And my daughter had quit nursing the month before. And I finally, like going out, and I was like, I can just sleep. I don't have to look at a clock. I don't have to worry about somebody needing to eat from me. I felt this freedom all of a sudden after a year. And then it it made me realize how much I had felt like a ball and chain stuck to my house and stuck to my baby. And I was like, oh my gosh, I had made every excuse not to leave her. I felt like I had to be there. And then I was like, I wasn't there because I had to be, my anxiety said I had to be there. And once I was done nursing and had the freedom to leave and go and not look at a clock, it like hit me on that girl's day. You have been struggling. You have been inside yourself so worried that your daughter wouldn't be okay if you were gone and you were stuck, you isolated or whatnot. So, or not so much isolated because if she was with me, I was okay but not wanting to leave her. Because in my mind, if I left her, probably something disastrous would happen, et cetera. So that was my realization a year postpartum. And then I just started doing work. And for me, luckily, it was like a light switch. And it just kind of, as soon as I was done nursing, I started to recover. Um, That's not the case for a lot of people. So I don't expect that to, you know, there's no literal process for this. But that was for me when I had my aha. So when you go back to why do I do now what I do? I do a bunch of different things. I don't only work with moms. I do testing as well. I do psychological and neurological uh, psychological evaluations for a PhD psychologist. I'm a supervisor for limited license. I work with substance use. So I do a variety of different things, but my heart is with moms. That's what I would say. Excellent. Yeah. And for those of you who haven't read the book or are have been dabbling with the idea of reading the book, I want to say of all the books that I read in preparation for pregnancy and postpartum, this was the book that I felt resonated the most with me. So I I feel I feel bad you had to go through an experience like that. But if anything, it just made me more aware that, oh, wow, okay, so everything that I went through is, is not from, you know, complete outer space. It is a normal (laughs) experience. Um, And that was, that was really the, that was the big point for me. If kind of like how you were saying, when you realized that you'd been struggling, it took having that girl's day to realize that it took me reading your book before I discovered how, how rough it really was. So that's awesome. So, and going back to um, when you did become a mom, what were some expectations that you had of motherhood? And in comparison to that, what was your reality? Yeah. So 
this is kind of fun too. I mean, fun or not, but honest, I guess. So I was ready. When I say I was ready, part of my anxiety as a person is needing to know what to expect, right? Some people think if you're anxious, you're anxious across the board. I am not anxious across the board. I have areas of anxiety and a lot of people don't understand that. So one of my specific areas is needing to know what to expect. So when I say I was ready to become a mom, what I felt like I would need to be ready would be to be with somebody that I viewed as a permanent person in marriage. Okay. You know, but a permanent person, uh, financially stable, and in a good mental headspace. So all those and my partner had to be in a good mental headspace. Those were just kind of my main criteria. So we checked off the list for those, right? And so I expected that when a baby came, I was going to be very patient because I waited. I expected that I was going to love to cuddle and want to soak up baby snugs. And that if my baby was crying, I would be able to handle it. I would be able to set realistic boundaries and not feel like I had to be present all the time. I would have a good balance of like, they can cry it out a little bit. They're a baby. They'll be fine. Right. Um, I expected to be tired, but not to be a zombie. So I expected, you know, to feel fatigued, but I did not expect the exhaustion to feel never ending and hopeless. And so with our first daughter, um, issues started for her, you know, right after she was born. So I had a really long labor and delivery over 21 hours, um, which put us at over 30 hours awake by the time that she was born. And then they're like, go to, you know, go ahead and get some sleep. And we're like, okay. And so we wanted to do that, but then we found out she had blood sugar issues. So within a couple hours of being able to quote unquote rest, it began this process of nurse, pump, and then um, tube feed, essentially, which was just a tube on your finger, not through the stomach. That continued for a couple of days, right? So for a couple of days, you're getting up every two hours and they're like, okay, nurser, you know, my husband would feed her with the tube feed and then I would have to pump. Well, by the time you do that process, your two hours is almost starting over again. So it's not a real two hours. So that exhausted us. Um, and then by the time we got home, she was colicky. So she would cry from about 5 p.m. at night to 11 p.m. at night. Uh, very difficult to soothe, almost impossible to soothe. We tried everything. So the level of exhaustion for that was beyond what I've ever expected. I've, I've tried to explain it to people as if you've ever worked a third shift and then have to drive home, and you're so tired and the sun's in your eyes and then knowing that you have to go back to work for a first shift and knowing that you're not going to be able to get sleep that day, but then realizing you're not going to be able to sleep for multiple days is kind of what our experience was like. So that level of exhaustion, I wasn't prepared for because she was so colicky. I didn't embrace all the hugs and cuddles, um, which also made me not patient right? I was frustrated. I didn't enjoy it. My husband and I will say to this day, we do not like the infant stage. It is not cuddles. It is not baby snugs for us. It is kind of frustrating for us, for us both. And I like that I can share that with my husband. I never had a husband that was like, well, you're a mom. You're supposed to, he's like, no, they're babies. They cry. They're annoying. Like, why would anybody enjoy this right now? And I love that. I love that that's been his perspective so that I don't feel guilt about it. He's like, who would enjoy sitting here with a crying baby? Anybody? And I'm like, okay, that feels better. So those were some things that I expected that were like, dang, okay, maybe I wasn't ready. You know, maybe I'm not as patient as I thought I was or learning. It's okay to not be patient with these things because like my husband will say, it is annoying to hear crying nonstop. Nobody's ears want to hear that. And I'm like, okay, that, that feels better. Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head about feeling like the third shift worker who has to turn right around and go back for first shift. I I think that is the perfect description of that level of exhaustion that I, I too was not ready for. We had a similar experience too with, with our daughter. Um, 
it wasn't blood sugar issues. It was just she had a low birth weight. And so the lactation consultant we were working with uh, was pretty adamant about, okay, every two hours, you need to make sure that you nurse her, then you pump and then tube feed her with, yeah, the same index finger. And it's like you said, as soon as you're done with that, all of that, your two hours is pretty much up. You've got, if you're lucky, 20, 30 minutes to rest before you have to do it all over again. Yeah. Well, and that's the thing, right? Everybody says sleep while the baby's sleeping. And at a certain point, I got so angry and frustrated with that statement because historically, my friends in college will tell you, my naps are three hours. I'm not a 20, 30 minute napper. If I get 20 or 30 minutes, I'm going to be more tired than if I got an actual nap. So for me, the sleep deprivation was it taking a huge toll on me, especially with my second, which we can talk about that another time, because, you know, a colicky baby's sleep patterns are super inconsistent. You don't know when they're going to wake or sleep. You don't know if this is going to be the random one hour stretch they might, you know, magically do, or if it's going to be their pretty consistent 15, 20 minute stretches that they do before they cry again. So to be able to say, okay, I'm going to lay down, I wouldn't do it. I can't, if I do it for 15 or 20 minutes, I'm going to be more easily frustrated or more angry because I'm more tired when I got that stretch, if that makes any sense at all, than if I just stay awake and keep going and eat sweets or something to keep my, you know, energy up. Once again, you hit the nail on the head. Yeah, I was the same way. I could not fathom just living off of 15, 20 minute naps, because like you said, it, you attempt to fall asleep, but then yeah, 10, 15 minutes later, baby's crying again. You wake up even more frustrated and furious. The mom yeah. reached things so real. Um, yeah, it's like, it's not yeah, even that's it. exactly how I felt. Uh, we talked a little bit last time about some of your expectations of motherhood versus the, your reality. And uh, going back to that, um, I don't know what your husband experienced or your spouse experienced when you guys had your first child, but I know mine in particular definitely had a moment of postpartum depression, anxiety, and to the point where he was researching for himself, okay, what are the dads supposed to do? And he really, he felt discouraged because most of what he was finding was just, oh, take a pill or just suck up and deal with it, you know? So in your experience, what advice do you have for dads or what what do you think dads in this scenario need to do to take care of themselves and to better their families? Yeah. So I guess there's not one specific answer, but I do write about dads or other, you know, people in the home that contribute as a co-parent, if you will. So typically we refer to dads, but it could be another partner. It could be a family member. I work with people that don't have another partner present. So maybe they're, um, you know, maybe they live with their parents. And so their parents are actually their co-parent or a sibling is a co-parent, whatever the situation may be. But Specifically to dads, you know, they were kind of left by the wayside for a while, and now they're getting a little bit more attention. The first thing I tell people is if you think, you know, your husband or the dad is experiencing anything, um, I refer them to Postpartum Support International, which I think I referred to before, which has information for dads, which has online support groups for dads. Um, It gives some information on their about what symptomology can look like. Uh, Like I wrote in my book, symptomology for dads can look different than moms that are experiencing a diagnosis. So for your dads, you might notice them being a little bit disengaged. You might notice that they are picking up more hours at work to do some home avoidance um, in a positive way, right? So it looks good to them. They're like, I'm working more. I'm bringing more money home for us. We just had a baby, so we need more money. So it kind of can justify their avoidance a little bit more with picking up hours or maybe helping family members more. Oh, well, so-and-so needs this done for their house or so-and-so had trouble with this. I'm going to go help them. So it always looks like they're doing, you know, many times it looks like I should say that they're doing something positive. And to, to them, they may really feel like that. 
you know, it might not be an intentional act of avoidance, but they might look for outlets to escape being home. Um, for the anxiety, I've worked with dads that share anxiety similar to the moms, you know, being afraid that something bad might happen, being worried that if their child is in somebody else's care that they won't do as well. And so you kind of ask, what do I do or what should dads do? And it's just like for moms, you know, I feel like there's a spectrum in which symptoms impact us and that spectrum kind of determines your level of care. So if it is not, if your symptoms are not significantly impacting you, you know, maybe just talking to a family member, friend, you know, a a support group or a therapist could be helpful. If symptoms are impacting daily life, Um, your ability to be present, yeah, you might want to follow up with a primary care physician about a medication to take to help bring the symptoms down a little bit. So what do I mean by that? I'll give myself as an example, right? So I struggled with postpartum anxiety, had my aha moment about a year postpartum. After my aha moment, things got better until I had my second daughter And then instead of significant worry all the time, I kind of got ragey, you know, mom rage, if you will. And I noticed that I was just super snappy and I had a 20 month old and a newborn and I was just like super short fused. And I was, I don't want my kids to have to deal with this. So I went to my doctor and I've been on Zoloft and it works for me. It brings the rage down. You could talk to a therapist about rage, sure, but the way that my rage was impacting me, I know what to do. I'm a therapist, right? Take a deep breath, walk away. But the way that I was so reactive, I couldn't use my coping skills. So that's one thing I tell people is like, if you can't use your coping skills, you might need a medication until you can use your coping skills. Does that make sense? So I have benefited from medication to kind of help bring things down to a manageable level so I am able to use my coping skills. Some people will be like, I can tell you every coping skill there is in a book. I can do, you know, write you a story on 101 coping skills, but I can't use them. I'm too reactive. I would say maybe you could benefit from a medication. Talk to your doctor, talk to a psychiatrist. That's the same with dads. You know, if you feel like, okay, I've tried these things out, things aren't getting better. Yeah, maybe medication short-term would help. It doesn't have to be long-term can be short-term while you adjust. You know, some people need to adjust at different stages as well. So for me and my husband, we both do not like the, I think I said this before, we don't like the infant stage. It's not our cup of tea. We don't like it. We feel like, you know, a ball and chain. We feel stuck. You know, we, we like to get up and go and we can't do that with a newborn. So it might be somebody needs a medication during the infancy stage and maybe during the toddler stage when there's more independence, they can go, okay. All right, I got through I got through the baby stage. I'm good. Some people might love the baby stage and when their kids start moving and getting into things, that might cause anxiety. Maybe that is an appropriate time for them to get um support through the use of medication. So there's no one specific answer. I would say how much is it impacting your daily functioning? How much do you feel not yourself? How much do you feel like I used to be like this. And of course, there's adjustments with becoming a parent, but that's what kind of the gauge I would say. Um, you asked about my husband specifically. You know, I think mine took over so much that we didn't focus on him. And I think he didn't really, how would you say this? I think he trusted me because I was a professional that he didn't know that there was a difference. Does that make sense? So I don't think he necessarily struggled with anxiety or depression because he was using me as his gauge to be like, this is how it's supposed to be. Does that make sense? So he was going off of the norm of our situation where I am a therapist and I grew up taking care of kids, babysitting, you know, and so I kind of set the norm for him where I had more uh, experiences to go, you know, 
I feel guilty about this or I feel guilty about that, where he can be very matter of fact and be like, baby's crying. It's annoying. Like that shouldn't hurt your feelings. <laughs> I'm like, but I remember these people that had babies that like cuddled them and we were patient, you know? So I think the two different contrasts, I don't think he did struggle with that. Um, I think he probably just like me, we struggled with the colic, but I think anybody would have told us that that was challenging and our reaction to the colic, I think, would have been well within the norms for him of what to experience. Because um, it was real bad. Like, it, you know, it was, it was real bad. Five hours nonstop, no soothing. And so I think once our daughter grew out of that, I didn't notice anything. You know, he would get frustrated, but it was well within reason. You know, he never felt concerned that he might hurt our baby where I did. He would, you know, he tapped he let me tap out. He took over. And so that was that. So for his specific experience, I think maybe if, maybe if I wasn't a professional, it would have been different, but he kind of trusted me to guide the way. And I was not in a, in a place to navigate, <laughs> if that makes any sense at all. Does that answer your question? It does. And I think if anything, my husband just felt like there was no help at all, or there was no, um, there was no valid reason for why he felt the way he did because all he ever heard was, or all he ever read was that, Oh, well, postpartum affects mom or postpartum depression, anxiety affects mom because of X, Y, Z. And he just, I think felt like his feelings were not valid and that's just not true. I'm going to say, yeah, if I can interject because I had this thought and then I forgot it. So that's one thing I write about in my book. And one thing I want people to know a lot of people assume that postpartum mood disorders or perinatal mood and anxiety disorders only impact the biological mother. And that's where there, a lot of people don't realize that anybody that does the primary caregiving to a baby, toddler, can have a diagnosis. People assume that the hormonal changes it, is what bring about the postpartum mood disorders. And that and, and although that contributes to mood changes, that is not exclusively what can bring on a diagnosis. I say it's the adjustment, it's the life change, it's the factors that come after baby that kind of determine it. And of course, if you have a pre-existing or or um have had a diagnosis prior to having a baby, it's true that it might uh magnify that. Okay. So in one of my interviews, I interviewed um, an adoptive mom and she experienced postpartum depression and whatnot because her expectation of what she thought when she got these little babies at home contradicted what really happened. And so I tell people it can be dads that get a diagnosis. It could be adoptive parents. It can be foster parents. It can be family members that share the home and share caregiving responsibilities. Um, and so there's more research out there now about that. But unless you've really done your research, people just assume moms, biological moms, due to hormones, which is not true. Not true in and of itself. You know, that does contribute, but not the only contributing factor. Yeah, and, and we've talked quite a bit. And I think he's at a better place now, but there for a while it was it was quite concerning just because it's the fear of the unknown, the fear of uh, I don't know how to handle this. Whereas if you research it for a mom, you have you seem like you have all these options available at your fingertips. And for all the other caregivers, it, it didn't seem so much. But uh, postpartum international. Yeah, I did notice that they had a section for dads and while we didn't use it, I wish we had known about it at the time. Um, I do think that's an excellent resource uh, for those that would be interested. And in. I think it's postpartum.net is their website. Um, if anybody's interested in, in looking that up. So going back um, when you were like in the throes and this not doesn't necessarily doesn't necessarily have to happen with the first child. It could be with any of them, but like your top three, coping strategies that you would recommend to first-time parents? So it might change on the day that you, that we talk, but what I can say today, well, and the number one I would say is support system. 
support system. And I know you're like, well, that's not necessarily a coping strategy. It is like having access to somebody 24 hours a day, uh, whether it be a text, Snapchat, phone call, you know, I would say was the biggest thing that probably helped me during the worst of it. Uh, knowing I could wake up my husband and say, you got to tap in, like I got to tap out or texting one of my really good friends who was also up with a baby, being able to text each other and be like, yeah, this sucks. This isn't fun. You know, having not only support, but like true, genuine people that you can be yourself where you don't have to pretend that you're like, yeah, just snuggling the baby when you're really just like in your room crying, you know, Um so I would say having a good support system, and I write about this in my book, and um, because it really is so important to me, there's people out there that don't have a support system. There's people out there that don't have access to people whenever they want. And that's why I really try to say, you have to build it. You really have to build it. Whether you start attending um, a support group through the hospital or somewhere local at, you know, a mental health or therapy office, they offer different offices, offer support groups, hospitals typically that have birthing centers will offer support groups. Maybe you have to start there and meet one or two people that are, you know, that you exchange numbers. Um, Maybe you have to do some reaching out to family members that, you know, have young kids or um, that you trust and feel comfortable with because it's going to make the world a difference to be genuinely you and to say exactly how you feel without having to put on for anyone can be so healing for somebody to say, yeah, this sucks. I hated that stage can help you not feel guilty about not loving it in that moment. And I know I'm sounding very negative, but that's postpartum depression and anxiety is that you don't see rainbows every day. You don't see baby snuggles as loving and bonding every day. Sometimes you feel touched out and ready to explode and it's okay. And to have somebody that can say, it's okay if you feel like that today. And if you feel like that tomorrow, that's fine. When you have more space and time to yourself, that hug will feel a little bit better, you know? So number one coping skill would be a good support system. Two would be getting the time you need away and Um, I would roll my eyes at that if somebody told me that when I just had a newborn, but I realize whether it's a newborn or whether it's somebody that has a toddler, that a lot of times they can come back with new energy, even if they get an hour break out of the home. And sometimes that's all you need is just, or even 20 minutes, you know, to go on a walk, to just not have to hear crying, to not have to here, if the baby needs something can be enough to just, you know, be good as caffeine to get you some energy and refresh yourself to go, okay, I can do this for a couple more hours. So I would say time away would be my second coping skill um, that I would recommend. Third coping skill, what would that be? Typically, I would say a, a hobby. And I, the reason why I say typically is because I took on running when my daughter had colic, but now my my son's five months old and I'm like, I haven't been able to get into it. So I'm like, I would love to say that because it was so healing for me, but between uh, sick kids and now having three versus one, getting running in has been tough, but I do feel like hobbies, social engagement in some form or a hobby in some form would be my third. So running was really healing for me. So what am I doing now since I can't do my running program is reaching out to friends, you know, finding times to do a quick outing if we can, or having somebody come to our house um, just to get that mental break away from just feeling like you're a mom all the time, you know, it helps to have another part of you. Yes, I am a mom, but I am a runner. I'm not a mom that runs because then I'm still only carrying that mom tie. I'm a runner. Okay. And yes, these are my friends. So like, I'm a friend here. I'm not a mom that has friends. Like, no, I had these friends before I was a mom. So I know the, the wording sounds like it's not important, but it gives you your own independent title. 
it can help you feel like, okay, I still got it. I'm good. Yeah, I never understood the importance of that because I had hobbies before I had my daughter. And shoot, I even up until the day she was born was was still participating in those. Uh, the big one was knitting. I was knitting her little hats, a little scarf and a baby blanket. And that was my downtime. And I loved it. And then, you know, she arrived and I went, what, what is she now? Nine months. I picked up the knitting just yesterday. Yeah. And I only did it for like 20 minutes, but holy cow, it felt amazing. Yeah. Like it just, it really did force my brain to focus on something that wasn't mom related. And yep. even if it was, yeah, just the, the short 20 minutes, it was enough to be like, wow, that felt nice. I'm doing that again. Yeah. And it contributes to skills that are you outside of being a mom. So it kind of re, it reaffirms like, hey, I am still my own person in this 20 minutes. I'll go back to being a mom afterwards, right? Absolutely. And it's it's one of those pieces of advice that I'd wish I had I had given myself before I became a mom, which kind of leads me to my next question of knowing what you know now of and now having three kids, what's the top advice that you would give your pre-mom self? Yeah. Mine would be definitely to get time away, you know, and not, not even huge increments of time, but just like with my first daughter, I wouldn't even go to the grocery store or I would rush it. Right. Like I go as quickly as I can. Cause I'd be like, Oh my gosh, what if she asked a nurse? Um, and now like, you got milk. I guess I'll be back whenever I get my things done, you know what I mean? So for me, the best advice is getting out, um, ideally socially. I really enjoy getting together with friends, um, but my friends all have kids. So sometimes that's tough, but even now just to go to the grocery store by myself is really nice or just to attend. Um, I like Zumba. So sometimes I attend a Zumba class and not feel rushed. Before I felt so rushed. I felt like, how is home going to operate without me? I better just go as quickly as I can. And my heart would always race. And I always felt like this adrenaline too. I didn't have time to myself. And really, my husband was fine. He was fine. There's plenty of milk and, you know, in the freezer or in the fridge, whatever was needed. So now I would say things will be fine. Take your time, get your time away. And I do that now, but I couldn't have done it. I wouldn't have listened to anybody, though, either that would have told me that. I would have been like, you don't understand, right? Because we we think that about ourselves when we're in a situation that's challenging, like nobody will understand. And then I look back and I'm like, no, everybody would have been just fine, you know. And there are moms, so disclaimer, there are moms that have babies with higher level of needs that, you know, really can't just leave them with anyone like if they have a GI tube or um, oxygen where I can understand a justifiable concern. Um, So I'm not discrediting that there are situations out there like that, but my daughter was healthy and could have gone with anybody I trusted and been fine. Yeah, I remember that it was torture. Like, yes, I welcomed the break, whether that was going to a grocery store or running an errand or something by myself. But it was, there were some moments where I felt like it was more trouble than it was worth because of the, all the scenarios that were going through my head of, oh, well, you know, this could happen. There's that adrenaline rush you talked about. It would hit me every time and it would be like, well, what about this? Well, what about this? And I'd get home and it'd be like, Hunky dory, you know, she's just over there with dad, everything's fine. And I was like, so I spent a lot of wasted energy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> just worrying about my kid. Um, yeah. So we do have a little bit of time. I think I'm going to go ahead and uh, bring in some questions that uh, were brought to the table. Uh, oh, here's one. Okay. So one mom in particular was asking me the. The idea of putting the baby down when you're in the throes, 
mm-hmm. of a colic session. They've been screaming their head off nonstop for the past hour, hour and a half, whatever. And you're just done mm-hmm. putting the baby down. It's like, what would you tell a mom who is in the throes of that and is scared to death to just put the baby down? That they're going to be okay. And if it's a first time mom, it's hard to feel that as a first time mom, you feel like you're neglecting your baby. You feel like you're supposed to be the one to offer emotional support. I'm so I'm a third time mom. So I get some privilege here. Right. So I can kind of speak from experience. Um, I remember, though, being a first time mom and thinking, especially being a therapist, I'm like, oh, my gosh, she's going to remember this or her body's going to remember and she's going to feel neglected and, you know, uh, emotionally detached. And the truth is, is it's not okay. My daughter's almost five and she's still very much attached to me. Uh, and I, I hesitated there because I was going to say even to school today, she's like grabbing my leg. Right. Um, so it does not impact it long term. And if you think about it, you're probably so overwhelmed that it's not good. You don't have good energy coming out of you anyways. Not in a bad way, not directed at this mom. But I remember me at that point, I had no good energy left to give. So it's not like they're getting these nice, warm embrace cuddles. I remember that my shoulders would be so tense. My arms would be so tense. My jaw would be clenched. They feel that. You know, they feel a non-comforting, you know, embrace. Don't feel guilty about that though either. It's okay. You're going to have those, right? So I would say putting the baby down and stepping away, they're going to be okay. All right. My kids are not sleepers. None of them. Okay. I've had to do the cry it out method, Ferber method more times than I like to even think about they're all attached. They're all doing okay. All right. They still, you they still bother me every second of every day that they can. All right. I got an almost five-year-old, a three-year-old, and the four-month-old that's going to be five months old. So I would say just know that they are. They will be safe. They will be okay. And it gives your ears a break. Sometimes the overstimulation from that crying, the piercing crying, and just to shut the door a little bit, wash your face. There's something really cleansing, like take a quick body shower wash your face, do something to just get the sound out of your ears. Even if it's two minutes is probably going to let you come back and go, okay, gear up. I can do this. It allows your body to relax. And then maybe you have to do it again. Um, so that would be my advice is that they're going to be fine. They really are. As long as the sleeping environment, you know, it's safe for them to do so, which you said they're putting her, you know, putting the baby in a crib. I say safe for them to do so as a disclaimer, um, not as a judgment. But seriously, as long as they are in a safe contained area, they're going to be OK. Um, and it will help them self-soothe a little bit. Now, I support what any parent wants to do in regards to soothing, self-soothe, you know, you present or not present. But it does teach them to self-soothe a little bit. If they've been fed, if they've been changed, if you can't see any visible thing that would be making them uncomfortable, uh, too tight pajamas or whatever, it's going to be okay. They're going to, and you really probably need three minutes the first time just to get that break. Okay, go back. Okay, are they still crying? You've checked them. Maybe take a couple more if you can't come back without your body feeling tense. So is there... I had one mom ask me this and we got to talking a little bit about the roommate stage, you know, after you have the baby and you kind of establish a routine of, of caring for your new family um, and, you know, mom and dad, they're doing the daily grind now and baby's at a point where baby's content, baby's needs are being met. You feel like you hit this roommate stage. You feel like you don't have any time to really devote to each other mm-hmm. you're just devoting everything you have to your family life and it just you're coming and going and say hi in the morning and hi again at night before you go to bed um is there a way to avoid or at least prepare your relationship with your significant other that's a really good question to try to avoid the roommate yeah situation. yeah yeah uh- And I smile at that because a few months ago, my husband was like, hey, roommate, you know, joking around, but it's true. And I think it's a natural thing that happens to most of us because it is, you know, you have a baby that doesn't sleep much. So it's not like you can plan 
a, a movie night or let's watch a show. We tried. We're like, all right, we're going to watch a show tonight. And then the baby, you know, is awake and not sleeping that night. Or, you know, you try to watch a movie and one of your toddlers come in and you're like, okay, we were really going to watch a Christmas movie, but um, so now this has happened. And so, you know, I don't know that you can avoid it. And if you can, if you have a listener that's like, we avoided it, like interview them and teach me your ways, I would say, because I don't know that there's complete avoidance to it. I think, you know, if you are in a healthy space, and what I mean by that is if you have normal ranges of anxiety and depression, then ideally you will be able to do things that maybe some of us other moms aren't able to. Let me give you an example. Sleep training. I was so worried that I was going to cause some sort of like attachment disorder with my baby or like some mood disorder with them if I if I tended to every single cry, right? And then I learned like, no, they have to learn a little self-soothing. So when I say like a healthy level of anxiety and depression, those parents are able to do sleep training a lot quicker. And they say don't do it between until like four or six months. So I'm not saying do it at two weeks old, but you know what I mean? That they can have healthier sleep for their child and then have some more of them time at night. My first two kids, no, like they didn't, like I was no, we can't sleep train them. They'll be sad. And then they'll feel like nobody's tending to their needs. You know? And so I feel like, you know, the first four months are going to be tough and you're not going to have much time to yourself and you're not going to have much time for each other even. So after that four to six time frame, when kids are sleeping better, then you say, okay, what are we going to do tonight for us? You know, are we going to watch a show? Um, Before the four months range, I would say, Somebody you trust can babysit so you can go out to lunch, go out to dinner. I wouldn't say don't plan anything too long because you'll probably stress about it. But if you do, okay, can somebody come so we can, I think uh, with our with our son, actually, we went and picked out a new bed one day and we're like, okay, we're going to have a family member come and we went and picked out a bed or um, you can, what was the other thing I was going to say is setting up plan dates. So some couples I've talked to do like, okay, once a month, newborn or not, you know, older or not, once a month, we go on a date. So there's ways that you can plan for that, you know, given that your child doesn't have additional needs where somebody can help you um, is to say, okay, we know this is coming. Let's just say once a month. That's realistic. You know, you could plan for that. And then I would say after the four month to six month time frame. Plan a couple nights a week. Maybe you watch a show together. Maybe you do a board game. Um, We're working on a puzzle right now as a family. You know, being intentional about your time together to prevent it from being like, oh, you're here? I didn't notice. You know, (laughs) something like that. Um, I just, for Christmas, I was like, okay, we got to be a little bit more intentional. So I did one of those. um, Oh, I bought it on Amazon. Like one of those adventure date kits. And it's like a scratch off thing where you have, you know, it tells you a date to do. But I was like, I don't know. Whenever we get time, we're like, go out to dinner. And I'm like, stick of going out to dinner, right? Um, so you could do something like that. And our plan for us personally is, okay, just one time a month for right now, we're going to do one of these adventure dates. And that's what we're going to do as parents to get out. Because I tell people what I would like for each person parents that, whether you're adoptive parents, foster parents, biological parents, uh, family members helping out, is there's three or four needs that you need to meet for yourself, okay? You need to meet yourself as an, uh, meet the needs of yourself as an individual. What do you need for yourself? For me, it's exercise. That's something that I have to do for myself weekly, monthly, okay? What do you need for yourself socially? Okay, so I need to get together with friends. All right, what do you need for yourself as a couple? Okay, we need to be able to go out to dinner, you know, be kid-free. So sometimes people only look at themselves as a parent and don't realize you have to fill the needs of these other 
components of you or you're going to feel depleted. Another thing for me was what do you need occupationally or not? For me, I can't be a stay-at-home mom full-time. It doesn't work well for me. I like part-time. Full-time wouldn't work well for me, but some people have to do it. So that was something I had to learn my balance of. And so fulfilling my occupational need, I need to be able to use my degree or else I'm going to feel frustrated with myself. I need time to exercise. I need time to see friends. And I need time as a couple to do hobbies that we enjoy or things we enjoy. People usually, a lot of couples throw their interests as individuals or as a couple to the wayside when they have a kid. And then they're feeling super strained, you know, or there's a lot of tension in the home. It's like, you used to like golfing, go golf. You used to like going with friends and, you know, doing a wine tour, go do that. And don't feel guilty about it because you're going to have more energy to fill in to your family, to bring to your family if you fulfill those outlets. So that's something with my first daughter was I didn't, I didn't do it, you know? And then I guarantee you, if you even come back from an hour outing, you'll feel refreshed or whatever that is. Maybe you, like you said, maybe you go somewhere and knit for an hour and then come back and you go, hi, you know? So that's what I would say for couples. Fulfill your own needs, fulfill your needs as a couple. That will help you not feel as much like a roommate. Awesome. Yeah, I know several people have this this struggle. And so I'm of the opinion, all right, we are not the first couple in the world to have to experience this. So surely there is a way, uh, there is a way to at least maybe not fix everything, but to make it better. Yeah. So you mentioned, uh, it's funny because you, you said, when finding ways to, to, to spend time together as a couple and not feel guilty about it. That leads to my next question that I got quite a bit and often wonder myself is, do you have advice on how to combat that ever present mom guilt? So I think that comes with having a support system of people that have kids. So that's one thing that when you have, so we have a a large friend group, just, I don't know if it's our personalities or what, but we both do on each sides of us. So I think having a lot of friends that are parents that we range in our friend group, we range. There's people that can go out of the country for a week together. I see your face. The other people can't see your face. And you're saying, ain't no way that's happening, right? And I have, we have friends that are comfortable and they're okay. And it doesn't impact them. We have friends that go, okay, I got a couple hours away and that's good for me. And then, you know, we might be in the middle of, we went out of state one time and that was like, okay, ready to go back after a couple days, right? So I think having a variety of healthy couples around you to say, it's going to be okay. And that kind of sets your norm, right? So we were talking about how I set a not very good norm for my husband, husband, the people around you do. So if you only have, and I'm not saying this in a demeaning way, because I was the anxious friend, I was the anxious mom. If your group consists of people that are struggling with anxiety, you're going to probably feel guilt about leaving. My group of people and I feel comfortable saying this, I'm not outing anybody because I've interviewed different people in my group on my podcast. I have people that never had a diagnosis. I have people that had maybe postpartum depression, but not the anxiety. So I had a, or have a pretty eclectic group that we can bounce stuff off of each other and kind of come to a middle of the road norm of this is what we want for ourselves as a couple. This is what we want for our kids, whether we talk about discipline together. You know, what do you guys do for discipline? What do you guys do? What do you guys do for sleep training? What do you guys do? So in that, we can go, oh, so-and-so left for a weekend. Their kids were fine. I don't think we have to feel guilty about that. You know what I'm saying? It kind of helps you. So I would go back to um, what are the people around you? 
doing. And if they're saying, oh, don't leave, well, maybe see, you know, are they a little anxious? Because I wouldn't say don't leave at all. But that support group can kind of help you combat that of not feeling guilty because you can go, yeah, so-and-so, they, you know, left their kids with grandparents while they went here and so-and-so did that. Yeah, and their kids are fine. We'll be fine. So I would say that. It's kind of, and I'm telling you right now, here, listeners, I'm telling you, they'll be fine. All right. Do the trip, get out or go on the date, get out. They will be fine. So long as you leave them with somebody you trust. Right. Um, so I think that your network kind of helps that for you. But if you leave them with grandma and grandma goes, oh, you're going to be on for two hours and they're nine months old. Really? Well, she's probably not helping you feel pretty good about it. Right. So good to have people that are in a very healthy space with expectations for child rearing, I would say. If anything, it just confirms in my head that, yeah, we may be adults, but that doesn't mean we don't succumb to peer pressure still. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. I remember, um, gosh, what, oh, I'm, I'm smiling on how I say it. I, I will not name names, but there have been times when people would go, oh, you're leaving her or them with dad? And I'm like, yeah, which could, if I wasn't in a healthy space, put doubt in my mind, right? But I know dad. He's got it. He's with us all the time. I run errands all the time. They're fine. So you're right in that, you know, there can be some pressure externally based on the responses you get that make you climb the question for a minute, like, oh, should I not do that? Why shouldn't I do that? Oh, no, I should. I trust my gut. I trust my partner. I trust my spouse. Like, they're fine. So, yeah, the response can kind of give the pressure and kind of make you hesitant. For sure. So the one of the uh, last questions I got um, was, what do you do on the days where you just do not want to be a mom? Are you ready for this? Tablets and TV. You know what I mean? I know that sounds terrible, but there are days um, where we all just need a break. Like I can tell we're all tapped out of each other. And yeah, I mean, not to say like let the TV babysit, but in a sense, it gives everybody downtime. So I, before we started recording, I had told you how our house had some sort of illness for almost three to four weeks. Okay. For me to be stuck in the house for three to four weeks is really difficult. I'm telling you, I've been outgoing since I was a child. My stepmom would say, you never stop. And I don't stop. I like to go. I like to be busy. So three to four weeks of being stuck at home. So I'm not exposing my kids to other people's kids. That's a long time for me. Okay. That's a really long time. And my two daughters are fighting like crazy and I'm like sick of putting out fires. Right. So we've had more TV time probably the last week, not because I wanted to babysit them, but because we all need a break. We all need a break from the conflict or getting easily irritated with each other. So yeah, I would like to say that I'd be like, do something like crafts or do something relaxing together. I'll be honest, when I'm tapped out, it's watch whatever you want. My For my kids, and this isn't a judgment thing at all, I, don't, I, don't, I truthfully respect whatever parents feel like their balance is. For our home, our kids only get uh, TV or tablet time, screen time, I guess that's what you would say two times a day, 30 minutes in the morning, 30 minutes at bedtime. So for them, they go hog wild if there's any like additional screen time and they're happy. So one, one child's over here with an iPad. This one might be here with a TV. You know, I got the baby already liking JJ and Cocomelon because I'm like, hey, you need downtime too, my friend. All right. We all need it. So that's what 
that's what I would do. And I don't feel guilty about it. I remember when the pandemic started and I had a bunch of friends that had to start working from home. And this was when there was no childcare, you know, like everything was closed. Childcare didn't open yet. And they're like, I feel so guilty because I have to work and I just have them in the screen or on a tablet. And I said, it's temporary. We're all adjusting. Like you, we're all just making do with what we have to work with. So whether there's external circumstances like a pandemic that happen, or whether you're just tapped out as a mom, you're not hurting your kids. You're not damaging your kids. You know, everybody will be fine. It's helping you get the break. It's helping them get a break. Probably at some point, like my kids probably get sick of fighting. So I'm sure having 30 minutes an hour to not fight with each other probably feels pretty good to them. So here's my long and not short answer at all, but tablet time, screen time. (laughs) Yeah, I felt like I, I felt that guilt. Like I think she was three months old. I felt like I had already ruined her for screens. Because I was using the TV as probably a coping mechanism more so than I should have. But I'm also, I'm in the IT industry. So screens are just a part of my life. And so I had to come to terms of like, okay, she's fine. She's exposed to this much screen time. Now, granted, she's still, she's nine months old at this point. But I can tell you right now, she's just as interested in off-screen things than she is the actual screen. In fact, half the time... She will not pay attention to the TV unless it's like the intro music to Bluey or something. Right. Other times it's on in the background and she's playing with her toys or she's playing with her books or something. So, yeah, yeah, I think it's one of those you just got to work past the guilt, um, find your your family's balance and oh, for sure. come to come to terms with that. Yeah. Yeah. Like I said, this past week, I'm like, what? OK, we just finished the movie. What movie do you guys want now? <laughs> Yep. Exactly. Well, that was the that was the three big questions that I had. Um, and I very much appreciate your insight and input into to all these those topics that we had and for one just coming on the podcast and sharing your your expertise uh with all of us and just to kind of wrap things up and provide an, an outro, where can we follow you or like are you on social media or where how can people keep track of, of what you're doing? Yeah. So, um, well, the biggest thing would be my book. I always tell people to start with that, not be in just as a disclaimer, I didn't write a book to make money. All right. I have it probably at one of the lowest costs that I can, um, for like to get reimbursed for printing and stuff, just because I want information for moms. I want people to feel supported. So when I mention my book, it's not like I'm Oprah. Okay. I'm not, I'm not reeling in, tons of money for this book. Uh, to be honest, I think it's like right now, I think I might get like $2 and 50 cents per book sold, you know, when, because I have it on sale right now for the holidays for nine 99, when it's $15, I think I get like three fifty. It's a dollar difference. Okay. So I say my book because that's where you'll get a lot of everything that I possibly ever wanted to share with the mom pretty much is in there. From there, I have a podcast because I don't know if we talked about this um, on recording or not, but I interviewed a bunch of different moms that had stories that were much different than mine to kind of set some other norms going, oh, this mom experienced that. Things I couldn't relate to, I want other people to know that they aren't alone in other areas that I couldn't cover. So my podcast is the name of my book, The Postpartum Therapist, and that is on Apple and um Apple I or yeah, Apple Podcasts and then Anchor Podcasts, A-N-C-H-O-R. So I have my podcast that you can listen to. Um, social media, I occasionally post on Instagram. Again, I kept everything the same name, the postpartum therapist, just because it's my book cover, it's easy to find, it's kind of centralized. Nothing really on Facebook or anything like that. So the only things that I've been doing is occasional interviews for other people's podcasts. I was on Gold Coast Doulas, which is a Grand Rapids based uh, um, group that they're doulas, but they also do a lot of work with moms. And so I've been interviewed on there. And then occasionally my book is sold at um, a place in Mason, Michigan, which you're not even from Michigan. 
I've popped up there and whatnot. So I do occasional pop-up events, but for the most part, it's just word of mouth where people might message me on Facebook, to be honest, and say, you know, kind of like how you did, hey, I read your book and people just kind of find me. And just so you know, I love that. It it just is like, okay, this hat, like I, the goal that I had in mind was just to make sure I reached out to a couple moms that could benefit. I didn't, I didn't do it to, you know, become this person that like is well known. So when you reached out to me, my heart just melted. I was like, oh, thank goodness. And then I felt elated when you were like, yeah, and I'm all the way in Kansas. And I'm like, Wait, how did that happen? Like, I never expected that. So when I get these little messages, sometimes usually it's from, you know, people that I know in a roundabout way. It's like, it was all worth it. It was all worth it. The late nights typing, you know, uh, handwritten ideas on a piece of paper when I had them in it. I literally had like a block of paper in my kitchen where I'd be like, what would I want? Oh, yes, I want to tell that to a mom. And I want to tell this, you know, all these things make it worth it. So, you know, if anybody's listening, feel free to find me in Facebook Messenger. Jasmine Star would be what it's under. Um if you have any questions or whatnot, that's probably the best way. I do have an email, but I don't check it much. I, I think it's in the book. It's uh, the postpartum therapist at gmail.com. So that would be another way, but probably Facebook Messenger. And don't hesitate. It melts my heart when people reach out. I'm like, oh, thank goodness. Because to me, it's like you did what I you did what I've encouraged you to do. You know, you've reached out, you've made a connection. And that's all my goal was for writing this book was to make sure people had connections. So feel free. Mission accomplished. I know. Oh my gosh. I'm like, I can't believe this. This is so cool. Very good. Yeah. And I'll put, uh, I'll put like, uh, Jasmine's, uh, handle in the, in the show notes as well for you guys to reference. But, uh, Jasmine, thank you again for coming on and, and talking with us today and uh thanks again to all you listeners um hope you found some some benefit to all of jasmine's thoughts and pick up her book today it, she said it is on sale for the holidays on uh, amazon is it sold anywhere else or is it just an amazon exclusive right now just amazon yeah i just did amazon so. perfect okay well we'll include a link to that in the show notes as well so thanks again and have a good day you guys Thanks for listening to the Postpartum Wow. If you like what you heard and you'd like to support this podcast, I'd love for you to subscribe and follow me on your favorite podcast platform. You can also follow me on my Facebook page at The Postpartum Wow. This way you'll be notified when new episodes are dropped every other Tuesday. Feel free to also leave a review sharing what you liked best, and this will help other listeners know what to expect when checking out this podcast. Until next time, friends, may your messy buns be on point and your coffee stay warm. Thank you.